1: Welcome to the 333rd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Jim Dew. Jim is the co-founder and CEO of Dew Wealth Management, an independent RIA based in Scottsdale, Arizona, that provides virtual family office style financial planning on a monthly retainer basis for 150 small business owner entrepreneurs. What's unique about Jim, though, is how he has scaled his retainer-based boutique firm to more than $7 million of revenue, a $31 million enterprise valuation, and is growing organically at a 40% growth rate by providing his high-touch comprehensive advice offering for his business owner niche clientele. In this episode, we talk in depth about how, despite not implementing an AUM model, Jim's firm was independently valued at $31 million of enterprise value based on the strength and growth rate of their retainer-based pricing model. How Jim arrived at his retainer-based model that charges $4,000, $6,000, or even $10,000 per month to cover the breadth of the financial quarterback services he provides to his ideal target clientele, business owners with more than a million dollars of EBITDA per year. And why Jim and his firm not only provide deep dive financial planning assessments to prospects, but have evolved to the point of charging an upfront fee of as much as $25,000 to prospects just to go through it after learning the hard way and feedback from existing clients that their history of giving away the assessment for free was actually undermining their perceived trustworthiness. We also talk about how Jim has structured his virtual family office style approach, not by delivering tax and legal and other services in-house, but instead by continually building a list of external tax and legal and other professionals that he and his firm don't just refer out to, but have actively sought out and vetted based on their credentials and education experience and personality and follow through. How Jim and his firm provided what he calls a time energy shield for their busy business owner clients by helping them to find the right professionals they may need, managing the projects with those professionals, and even fielding the inevitable business pitches that come at their clients. And why Jim and his firm use Monday.com instead of a traditional CRM, both to map out and manage workflows and tasks for clients, but also to keep detailed information about their vetted professionals and COIs while also creating a dashboard so that clients can keep track of the progress of all the services that the firm has provided them. And be starting to listen to the end, where Jim shares how after a couple of years of struggling to hire the right candidates for his firm, he realized that the recruiters he was using were not delivering and decided to implement an ESOP to attract candidates as well as hiring a director of operations who built a marketing-esque hiring funnel to bring in more advisor talent. Why Jim feels strongly about developing a niche focus because he learned that by becoming an expert in a particular field, it was easier to market and clearly communicate services and find the right fit clients for his premium services. And why even though Jim has received offers in the past, he feels he won't be selling his firm anytime soon, despite its strong valuation multiple, because he believes his unique business model contributed to the 10x growth of the firm in the past eight years and wants to continue his legacy in impacting how financial planning is provided to business owners for the foreseeable future. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Jim Dew. Welcome, Jim Dew, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. I'm really excited to be here with you today. I'm, I'm really excited to talk about today's episode and, and what I find are sort of two, two interesting, I guess, like trends and shifts in the industry that to me, you, you, are, you are bringing together in a very striking, distinct way. You know, one is this kind of ongoing shift that's been happening of we'll just sort of broadly call it alternative fee models, like which basically means like things besides AUM, uh, most commonly known as some kind of retainer subscription style fee, so we can get recurring revenue and and um uh, and not necessarily need to be reliant on on assets or product sales. But you know, most retainer firms, I guess most of the criticisms I see around retainer and subscription firms is like, okay, but How big can this really grow? Like, do you have to ultimately have the assets in order to get the long-term retention? Because assets tend to be sticky, or just to be able to generate like enough revenue to to work with some more affluent folks who who write some bigger checks. And, you know, commonly one of the places that the industry has gone for at least people who are able to write bigger checks is business owners. But, you know, business owners for a lot of our industry's history. I mean, I remember back to my start. A long time ago like we loved working with small business owners because uh we could sell life insurance for their buy sell agreements and that was the only yeah. reason why i really want to talk to business owners buy sell life insurance or maybe like a fancy split dollar insurance arrangement for some tax strategies that the ira shut down a long time ago but once the industry started shifting to AUM i actually feel like advisors got more distant from small business owners because we weren't necessarily selling the insurance products for the buy-sells. And AUM is really hard for business owners because they either are not liquid or when they are the serial entrepreneurs, they don't even want to invest when they're liquid. They just want to put the money into the next business and start the next thing. And so I know you live at this interesting intersection of building around a subscription retainer model, building a very large firm, as we'll talk about. You have Many millions of dollars of retainer fee revenue and uh, several dozen staff, and like much larger than most other retainer firms that I've seen. And you're doing it squarely in this domain of small business owners. That's not about products or assets. It's literally about like the advice that's provided for the ongoing retainer fee. And so I'm just I'm really excited to talk about how you've how you found and managed to to drive success with this intersection of monthly retainer model plus business owners for enough dollars that you can really build and scale this. Yeah,
2: it's been a great journey. And it's, you know, every overnight success took 20 years, I've kind of bumped my head against the wall, my wife and I who've built the company over the years and figured our path out, which is turns out to be a good one for us.
1: So I think to to start, like, just paint us a picture of the advisory firm as it as it exists today. Like I how how has this come together over 20 years of overnight success? Yeah, well, today, we're we're a firm of 27
2: employees. 20 of those employees are advisors. This year, we project we'll do $10 million of gross revenue. We're Inc. 5000, fastest growing, one of the 5,000 fastest growing companies in America. we, we were happy and proud to be uh, certified as a great places to work through secret surveys that they give to the employees and those kinds of things. Uh, We became an ESOP in September of this last year. So now we're employee owned and there's a whole thought process that went behind that. And we feel like it's blue ocean. We're just growing so fast. We're hiring and recruiting constantly. Uh, We feel like this is a great home for advisors who want meaningful work, who want to do real planning and who want to be owners of this company along our side. So that's where we are today. And you know, with my wife as president and me as CEO uh, and our managing director and our director of ops and some of the other executive team positions. Uh, It's kind of weird to even think of where we are from where we originally
1: came. So help us understand from the the client side. So you said projecting 10 million of gross revenue this year, how, how many clients is it? Yeah, we're right at about 150 entrepreneur business owners right now.
2: And we've got uh, we've had a six-month wait list, so a new client that comes forward, we put them on a wait list for six months, and we've just eaten into that now with our hiring and recruiting. So now we're about four months out on our, uh, our wait list for our, our
1: new entrepreneurs to come on board. So, so I'm just trying to think about math of this, like 150 clients, like it's projecting 10 million revenue this year. Is that where you are now or like with growth because you're going to have more than 150 clients by the time you get through the year? Like, With growth.
2: North where are growth. you now just last year we did just under 7.3 and we're adding 5 or 6 new clients a month that's the max about that we can take on uh and so with that projection
1: and with those new clients yeah. coming on that's where we get the 10 okay so so that's a big like just raw math of revenue per client that's a big number like 7 plus million going on 10 million revenue 150 clients Probably approaching 200 by the end of the year at at the at the pace you're at. I mean, you're you're talking about the a neighborhood of like fifty thousand dollars of revenue per client. Am I thinking about that math correct? You are. So we have three service models for our
2: entrepreneurs, and the lowest is four thousand a month. The highest is ten thousand a month.
1: So we go low, per, mid, per four, month. six,
2: and ten per month. Okay,
1: because why? Like there are <laughs> a lot of advisory firms, like. 4K is our annual retainer, like 10K is our annual retainer. So you're at 4K, 6K, or 10K per month in ongoing, ongoing advisory fees, ongoing retainer fees. That's correct. And we have no long-term contracts.
2: Everything's on a month-to-month basis for the business owners. And yet, that's one of the reasons they love it. They like to just know what they're paying and what they're getting, and they're not locked in. And really, I mean, the th- advantage Mimi and I have had, my wife Mimi, who we started the business together over the years, is we're entrepreneur business owners. So we just asked ourselves along the path, how would we build it for ourselves as business owners? What would we want? And we just kept answering that over and over and changing the model as we went. And we said, hey, we wouldn't want anyone to be focused on anything other than us. We don't want them to get paid in some other way other than by us. And we don't want to be stuck in long-term contracts. And that's kind of how we created the model.
1: So so I was just thinking through this from it's sort of like the, the math of the business. So 150 growing on 200 clients, 20 advisors. So like advisors may only have seven to 10 clients, or I guess like an advisor to advisor team might only have 15 to 20 clients. Is is that the the neighborhood of how this plays out? No, because it looks that way just because we've had to hire up.
2: It takes okay. us some time to train our advisors to be able right. to do this work. We right. can't, find anyone we can bring in that immediately can do this work with business owners. So there's a lag time and we need capacity with a growth rate. But we figured out that an advisor can handle between, depends on which service level, but between about 15 and 30 clients per advisor. And then we handle it with a team perspective. So we've got an advisor for the client, we've got a senior advisor above, and we have an associate advisor helping from below.
1: Okay. So help us understand then like just what on earth are these advisors actually doing that you can only have 15 to 30 clients per advisor? I don't mean to diminish that, but for a lot of advisory firms, the numbers are bigger uh but you're doing fifty plus sometimes a hundred plus thousand dollars of of revenue from a single client. so you know advisors of fifteen to 30 clients can still have like million dollar revenue books uh. In the in this model, which is a really, really, really healthy number, so it just help us understand, like, what on earth are you doing <laughs> for clients <laughs> at 4k, 6k, 10k per month? It it sounds like that's very structured, like there are you know service tiers and defined things of what you get at each tier. It's like, what do you, what do you get at each tier? How does this work?
2: Well, that's where the magic is, right? It's, It's hard. This model is very hard and takes a lot of work. And you have to deliver a lot of value to have business owners want to pay that kind of money. And they do want to pay that kind of money for the services they're getting. And it takes me back to my early days. When I started in the business, I was told by one of my managers, you want to be the quarterback. You want to be the quarterback so that you're bringing them the estate attorney and the CPA and those kinds of things. But what that really meant was, you were introducing the client to these different professionals and that was kind of your job. But with this model, we always say, we think about a wheel. We call it the financial flat tire when an entrepreneur comes to us because business owners over their lifetime, they pick up an accountant, an attorney, an insurance agent, they get these different professionals. And if you picture those like spokes on a wheel, they're usually not all A players. They're not talking to each other and collaborating. No one's holding them accountable. But the worst part is the entrepreneur is in the middle of that wheel Managing that team when the entrepreneur doesn't have the time or the expertise to speak all those languages of tax, legal, insurance, and investment. So we create something we call the functional wealth wheel. And this is where we evaluate their current team. We keep everyone who's an A player, we'll keep them all if they're all good. We hold them accountable because we know what an attorney and a CPA and an insurance agent should be delivering. And then we get that team to talk and collaborate. And the entrepreneur then steps outside of the wheel as the visionary, almost like the CEO who can. Run his or her business, spend time with their family, take their vacations, and we're running that team. So, what we really do in essence is we run that team, but I mean to a very detailed level with how we do the tax planning with the CPA, with how we review the work the attorneys are doing. We're deep in all of those documents and all those projects, and we're running the project. We're not in the back seat with the CPA driving or the attorney driving. We're actually driving the vehicle and using those experts for their expertise and making sure they're delivering and not overcharging and getting the outcomes and results that these business owners need and desperately want, but are not
1: getting when left to their own devices. Interesting. So so I'm just trying to process relative to, as you said, like a, a lot of advisors, we like to talk ourso- about ourselves as the, as the financial quarterback at the center of all of those different Different affiliated professionals, so I'm just trying to make sure I'm understanding like what the the distinguishing of what you're doing versus what what other advisors who say this are doing, but apparently not doing what you're doing because they're not charging the fees that you're charging uh so I, I if I'm understanding like the two big distinctions here is you're not just interacting with their professionals you're you're evaluating their professionals, you're making recommendations to replace their professionals you're actually bringing in and introducing new professionals so I guess you've got your own network of people or your own way of evaluating and vetting to try to find good good people to do this so you're you're actually making the people in that team the good people that they need to be so that's one distinction
2: Absolutely. And we've got now we have advisors in 12 states. We're headquartered in Scottsdale, but we have remote advisors in in 12 states. We have clients in 40 states. We have a deep network of professionals all across the country. And so yeah, that's part of it is evaluating, holding accountable and replacing professionals when appropriate. And entrepreneur business owners often they outgrow their professionals and yeah. they don't know when they do and how to replace them and what they're doing and they just say, "Hey, I like the person and she returns my calls." That's why they keep a professional and that's not always the best reason. I just want to seem like
1: how you actually do this will will build the the team. I mean, like how are you finding the professionals to do this? It means like, do you have a set, set quarry of folks that are really good and you're just like actively referring them? Do you have a whole like, oh, you're in I don't know, you're in the uh, uh, LA area. Well, we've got a process where we find, you know, 10 LA attorneys and interview them and then winnow it down to three and then pick the final one and then make that your, like you go into that level. Like how how do you actually plug in, find and vet and plug in the the professionals they're using? Yeah. And it, it's all of the above what you just
2: mentioned. So some is relationships that, that we've built over. you know, I've been in this industry for almost 30 years, pushing 30 years. So over my career, it's professionals that we have created a COI list. And then it's also once you know a great professional in an area, often they know other great professionals. So if you have a great CPA mm-hmm. in LA, for example, that CPA probably knows a great asset protection attorney. In LA, so we can get those contacts, and then we run them through our vetting process. So we have five areas we look at. We have we go to the regulatory websites, which a lot of advisors I'm still surprised they don't go to regulatory websites to look at complaint histories and all the things you can find out from the bar association or the the uh, state board of accountancy for CPAs. We look at education credentials, we look at specialty, we look at personality and follow through. Uh, We look at experience. So we really drill down and have a process to evaluate those professionals. How many years have they been doing this? Those types of things, you know, were they always, you know, working in California? Did they move from another state? Now, typically people leave out of California, not to California. That's maybe a bad example. But, you know, how, what's their experience look like? What's their specialty? Because in what we do, we really need specialists who know what they're doing. And then finally, personality and follow through we always tell our business owner entrepreneurs, a mistake a lot of business owners make is they find people on their team that they feel are like them. And I usually tell them about the book about Abraham Lincoln called Team of Rivals. Abraham Lincoln, like no president probably since, uh, he put rivals, people who hated each other and had different perspectives on his cabinet. So we say, you don't want to have everyone on your team that you love and you feel like you see eye to eye, eye, um, but you also want to have, personalities where you feel like you understand each other and you can communicate right. and
1: work together. So you're evaluating them across all of these dimensions. So I guess what does that look like? I mean, it, like you'll reach out cold to a CPA and say like, Hey, you were referred to me by so-and-so I've got a client in the area that may have a need, but we evaluate the professionals that we, uh, that we refer our clients to. We'd like to spend 30 minutes with you getting to know you and more about your background and you start going through this like questionnaire list that's a very good example so we'll okay. any of these you know these professionals they want good business and the professionals
2: we refer to love our model because often the very good professionals in the different disciplines they get frustrated because these entrepreneur business owners won't follow through with what needs to get done to implement these things. Right. And so Uh we're making sure that, you know, all the titling when they're doing some sort of asset protection trust is done correctly and the gifting of things and the documentation, you know, or the CPA with the tax planning, we're making sure everything ends up in the file. So all those little things that don't get done, we're making sure they get done. So the very best professionals, they love it. And because we're in charge, it's not like they have to worry about these off the rail entrepreneurs who don't even know how they're evaluating these different things, and so we're guiding the process. Our our entrepreneurs aren't even going to be on an, a call with a professional until we vetted out kind of the ideas and the strategies and what will and won't work before they even get involved.
1: So, who does the vetting internally? I mean, they do you have your know, chief vetting officer. <laughs> who's like someone on the team who's just really good at doing these interviews and sussing people out? Does like each advisor do it for their individual clients? You have to train all the advisors how to, how to, how to, you know, execute on this skill set. like just as a business, how do you actually manage this like growing network that you're trying to uh, refer out to and work with?
2: Yeah. Part of it is documentation and organization of the professionals, the COIs who are they, how have we vetted them, how have we used them, what's their expertise, where do they work best? And so we have a Monday board. We use monday.com, a Monday board to to keep track of all of that stuff. So part of it is just not losing the information and the the details on each professional and how they match up so that an advisor can say, hey, I'm looking for a professional that does specifically this, maybe in this area, because sometimes some planning could be any state the person could live in, other types of planning, You need an attorney, for example, in that state. So then they can go look at the COI list. They can see who actually was the one who vetted that professional or who's worked with that professional and then go to that advisor and say, hey, here's my situation. Is that a good fit? So there's some of that, which is just stacking on top of itself. And then there is also what happens if we need a space filled that we don't have filled. And then we take them through the process. Typically, that would be one of our senior advisors who has the most experience has vetted these professionals before. And then sometimes we do a group thing, depending on the position and how important it is or the client, we might have a couple of advisors on the call. So we get a couple of different perspectives about that professional and how they're answering the questions and how we feel that they're going to fit with the client.
1: Interesting. And and so I'm assuming this just like all I don't know, all the, all the quote unquote usual professionals that I would envision here, like an accountant doing, doing tax and books work, um, Probably a couple of different attorney types because there's someone that's going to do the estate side and there's someone that's going to do a bunch of the business law side if they're doing mergers and acquisitions or you know, corporate restructuring or, or something along those lines, something on various types of business insurance and personal insurance, like that, that kind of stuff.
2: Absolutely. Very much what, so. All, all of else? the
1: above. What else is in that network? list. It,
2: it could be outsourced CFO services. Sometimes our business owners aren't ready to hire a CFO, but they need outsourced CFO services. So we'll help with that along the way. Sometimes they need something specific like a litigator. They get sued. They have to defend. Uh, really anything you can think of that would happen to a business owner, that professional we're going to be involved in, even helping them build out their C-suite. So we'll help with that process as well.
1: Interesting. So I get it now. Just they get into the moment of you know, oh, we had this interesting opportunity where we could do an acquisition of another business in the area, and we've never acquired a business, and we literally have no idea what we're doing on all the legal stuff. Like, Jim, find us the lawyer people we need. Absolutely, you know.
2: Or out of the (laughs) blue, they have no plan on selling their business, and all of a sudden they get approached by a PE firm that says, "Hey, we're interested." They don't know what to do, and that's what we always tell our our business owners is just come to us, just throw it over the wall to us. If you don't know what to do, because remember business owners are talking to other business owners and they're coming up with sometimes great ideas and sometimes crazy ideas. And so they get these ideas all the time. We say, just don't worry about it. Just flip it over the wall to us. And that's something that we call in the business our the time energy shield. So we tell the entrepreneurs like, we're your time energy shield. So anything that comes across your desk that has to do with your business, business or personal, financial, anything, you just throw it to us And we're going to protect you from professionals, pitches, and projects. Those are the kind of the three P's we protect our
1: business business owner entrepreneurs from. Interesting. Wait, wait, give me the three P's again. Like I want to (laughs) capture this.
2: Yep. Professionals. So we tell entrepreneurs, you shouldn't be talking to your CPA about tax planning. That's something that we would do. And then we're going to bring you in once we've vetted all the strategies that fit your unique circumstances. We don't think you should be talking to your insurance agent about, do we need to increase our cybersecurity or EPLI on the business side or on the personal side? How much do we need an umbrella and, and what exclusions in the umbrella would be a problem for you in particular? Uh, so we protect them from those conversations with their professionals, which quite frankly are usually, the initial calls anyway, a waste of time. They don't even know what the right. person's talking about um, yep. pitches. So entrepreneur business owners, as they get wealthier and wealthier and their income goes up. They Uh get pitched all these ideas, private equity, VC deals, you know, um, real estate syndications, cryptocurrency. Uh, So we just say, just flip it over the wall to us. We can take a look at it before you go down that rabbit hole. And then finally, projects. So everything that we do is really a project to be managed. And usually, and we tell business owners, if you have something in your company that's a project and either no one's managing it or someone who doesn't know what they're doing is managing it, what kind of results are you going to get? And the results are going to be poor or it's not going to get done, right? So we manage those projects to make sure things are getting done on a timely basis and that we're driving that process forward so that, you know, an estate plan doesn't sit for a year like it does oftentimes with business owners uh, because the attorney thinks that the business owner is going to take the next step and the business owner is off doing who knows what and, oh yeah, I need to get around to that.
1: Interesting. So I I like that framing now, just that helps visualize. So professionals pitches projects. So this whole v- finding vetting. Hey, we even have a network uh, uh, role. You're getting pitched off. We'll help screen it and bat it down for you. And then all the all the projects that have to get managed as you're integrating these professionals to do the things that they need to do. So help us understand further now the the project end. Right? You'd as you said like. You help them put this team together and then you're literally like running the projects and manage these these things across the professionals. So help us understand more now, like what this sort of project management end of things really means for you.
2: Absolutely. So when it comes to tax planning, uh, tax planning, often we find that CPAs are more tax historians. Because they're so into the compliance and filing the returns and meeting the deadlines that often they're not proactively looking forward and really digging into that business owner's unique circumstances to see what might fit or what might not fit. So just as an example, we'd be digging into the tax return and we might say, hmm, we notice on line 13 that you're not getting a qualified business income deduction. Why is that? Let's go look at the business return. Let's figure out why you're not getting a QBI. And we might find, for example, this was actually happened, that the business owner had two different businesses. The CPU was not aggregating. One business had very high profit, no employees. The other business had no profit and lots of employees. And we said, hey, if we aggregate these two related businesses, all of a sudden we get this huge QBI deduction. So then we go back to the CPA and say, hey, what if we did this? And the CPA goes, oh, yeah, I guess we could do that stuff like that. So we're digging into the tax returns, looking for opportunities. And to do that, we have to understand the tax returns and tax planning and drive the process. A business example might be we're going to review all the legal documents. So it could be an estate plan and we're going to go in and say, hey, in the dispositive provisions, maybe we could structure it differently for the kids so that we can protect the kids more, but give them opportunity if they meet certain." qualifications for an incentive trust or something like that. We might dig into an asset protection trust and suggest, you know, different situs based on the circumstances of the situation and go to the attorney and say, "Hey, what about this? What about that?" So we're deep in those. We're going to review the the insurance policies and, you know, as I said, we might find exclusions in the umbrella and go back to the carrier and or the agent and say, hey, they need to either remove this exclusion, this dangerous dog exclusion, because you know our client has a dog that falls into the dangerous dog list. And mm-hmm. that's not good. We can't have an umbrella that's not going to protect the client if this dog bites someone. So either, either you need to help us get that removed or we need to find a different carrier. So we're just digging into the minutia and then driving the projects. And it could be simple things like making sure annual minutes are there for the entities and making sure they're documenting all the things that need to be documented so that they don't have to worry about getting the corporate veil pierced because they're not doing all the important things you need to right. do to show that you have an entity that's in in proper condition and being managed properly. So that's kind of a flavor of the stuff that we're going to do. Really dig into the deep planning with the professionals on behalf of the entrepreneur and not CCing the entrepreneur on every email, not having them on every phone right. call, vetting those things, then coming back and saying, okay, here are the options that we think fit with the attorney, with the CPA, and then go through and see how that that feels good or doesn't feel good to the entrepreneur. And then we do a call with the professional and kind of get it done and take it to the finish finish line for the entrepreneur.
1: And so is all this getting managed in Monday as well? It is. So every client
2: has a Monday board. We have all the projects listed out. In fact, sometimes we get business owners who are skeptical and they say, yeah, it sounds great, but h- how am I going to know you're actually delivering all, the, all these things, especially if you're not copying me and I'm not on the phone calls? How do I know you're even doing anything? So we always say, if you want to have access to your Monday board, you can. And what we find inv- invariably is a business owner might say, yeah, I'd love to have access to that. And then usually about three or fun- four months later, they say... Okay. All right. You guys are doing, a ton of, <laughs> I do not want to look at that board anymore. That is ugly. There's a, too many things on that oh. board. And so, okay, you don't have to see it. If you want to see it again, let us know. We'll let you see it. Uh, and that's how we manage it as a Monday board for every single client. So, and that so way for, we can easily look and see where we are on different projects for that client.
1: So for advisors who aren't familiar, just, can you explain Monday? Our director of
2: operations is a genius when it comes to things like monday.com, Uh, In essence, it's a software where you have these boards and and it's project management software, I think is the best way to think about it. Uh, But almost everything in any advisory firm is a project to be managed. So any kind of project is going to have a board. And on that board, you have kind of what happened last, what happens next. And by clicking a button, it will send notifications to different people. Okay, now here's the next step that you need to, to take. In this particular situation, so we built out SOPs for a lot of the things that we know every business owner is going to need, so that that project has a step-by-step Monday board, and when you finish one, it automatically pings the right
1: people to go to step two. All right, so this like this is essentially your sort of project management workflow. Engine. I mean, I'm thinking so, like Asana, Trello, or uh, Meister Task, or are other things I know that just like manage projects and tasks in boards. So, that, yes. like, this is an, another another version of of that flavor of of tools. That's exactly uh, right. But you're literally using it like for. I guess as I think like of workflows. Literally, like we did this and we checked the task off and it automatically cues this next task to this other team member. And when they do their thing, they check it off and it cues this next task to the next team member. Like you your director of ops is building like those kinds of flows into into Monday.
2: That's exactly right. It's gonna be our primary driver to, in essence, run the day to day activities and making sure stuff's getting done, how it's getting done and when it's getting done.
1: Okay. And uh, uh, so where does, where does CRM sit relative to this? Because it's a lot of what you're describing is usually what advisors handle in their CRM systems.
2: Yeah, and we've used Redtail for many years. And what we found, especially when we went multiple states, it just could not keep up. It can't do what we need it to do. There's glitches in the software that are not working for us. I know a lot of advisors love Redtail, but it is just, and I've had conversations what, what? with Redtail.
1: What What's the problem across multiple states? It has to do with scheduling. Their scheduling
2: system working with things like Calendly and Outlook, uh, you, you have to use this interface that is clunky and often doesn't work. So the
1: advisors oh. were getting really frustrated because their Be-
2: calendars were getting messed up.
1: Because of the times, because, because yes. of all the time zone differences, like yes. it's, it's, the, it's the time zone issue of like, I'm in California, need to schedule a meeting with a client in Chicago that also includes a team member who's in uh, uh, Arizona, which will have a different time zone depending on whether we're in daylight savings or not. It's like just all that stuff was not getting scheduled. The scheduling wasn't coming out right when you're doing it through Redtail. Yes.
2: And we're in Arizona. So Arizona, as you might know, know. our time gets... Yeah,
1: yeah, your time zone changes (laughs) within the year as you go. Well, I guess as the rest of the world goes in and out of daylight savings that you have opted out of. (laughs) That's exactly right. We don't change, uh,
2: but everyone else does. So it creates this other complication.
1: But does that mean you're like, are you doing like scheduling and calendaring in Monday as well. Like is it is it a calendaring system as well as project management for you?
2: Not yet, but that's okay. what our director of ops will he's working on and this year okay. we will have that be our system that runs everything. Okay. We're going to get there. But that's the goal is just to make things much more streamlined, much more effective and efficient and right now it's been clunky with using, you know, these different softwares. So we're trying to make that really being driven by one which for us is monday.com it has the capabilities to do everything we want Uh, i couldn't do that certainly but that's why we have experts on the team which is a good lesson i think for all the advisors out there is you know as if you're building a practice You know, what got you from A to B may not be what gets you from B to C. And we've learned that along the lines. And I've had to, Mimi and I have had to, uh, you know, my wife, Mimi, who we started the business together. We've had to realize that we have to let go of certain things and find people better than us in areas that we're just not good at.
1: So. I want to come back to the 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 client end you'd said there are there are three tiers to pricing at four k six k and ten k per month, so what's the difference across the tiers like is it differences in the three p s or is it other things like what determines whether i'm a four six or ten k client?
2: The simple answer is complexity to the situation, and the starting point for any business owner to work with us is they have to be doing a million dollars of personal income, not gross revenue, personal income between EBITDA or profit from their business, and if, say, there's an S-Corp salary they pay themselves, that has to be more than a million dollars that's coming to them personally. That's where it makes sense to hire us at the first service level. And really, we're driven more by income than by assets. We couldn't care less whether the entrepreneur has 50 million of assets or zero other than the business, because it's really driven by complexity. If you think about it, When a business owner is making more personal income, that's when they have tax problems. That's when they start accumulating assets and they need to know where to put their money and they have asset protection problems. So that's our starting point is a million dollars, personal income to the business owner and a nuance. We only work with owner-founder entrepreneurs. We don't do the son or daughter of the founder. We find that we just don't jive with those people as much. And then the service level, level really depends on complexity. So for example, at a, our lowest level, they're probably not going through a full-blown exit. That's not even in the cards. So that would be something the highest level where we hire the M&A attorney, we negotiate investment banker fees, we're working with asset protection, estate attorneys, uh, tax attorneys often, CPAs for all the tax planning. So it's just really a level of complexity. And that also drives how much time they need. So for example, our first service level, we do tax planning twice a year in the summer when we have 6 months of the P&L and then in the fall obviously so we get stuff done before year end when we move up a level then we're doing it quarterly quarterly and when we move it up a level every couple of months we're doing tax planning with the highest level client so it's really driven by complexity and that also drives how often we need to be involved in these big chunks that need to get done
1: right cuz just you, again you get to a certain level of in, of income complexity activity and just if you're managing projects the sheer volume and frequency of projects starts amping up when they've got more stuff right more income like they're 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 buying more houses they're going more places they're growing expanding the businesses in new and different ways like just there's there's just more things coming at you at least on average as as income rises so That's are exactly right yep so i mean is there actually a formulaic thing like if your income is at least a one million, you're a four K client. If your income is at least two million, you're a six K. If your income is three million plus, you're a ten K like is it a is it a formulaic threshold kind of thing like that? Or is this a more subjective we've evaluated your situation and based our understanding of your situation and the anticipated complexity in projects, we are quoting you blank. It's, and, cool, and it's, it's a little cool. more subjective. It, it
2: there's a little subjective to it, but it's 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 funny you mentioned that, Michael, because you kind of nailed it. Uh, a business owner that's doing more than a million would be our tier, first tier, more than two million would be our second, more than three million it would be our third. And we've got some entrepreneurs that are making ten or twelve million dollars personal income per year on the high end. But that's kind of the delineation. But then it becomes a complexity thing. Because even if someone's doing a million a year, but they're they're about to sell their business and they have a bunch of family issues they want to plan around and you know they've got a lot of assets in different places. So there can be times when we have to say, okay, you look like you'd be a tier one, but you're really a tier two for all these reasons. But we also give them that kind of easy way because business owners like to know very simply, how do I think about it? And we tell them a million or more, you're at the first level, 2 million or more personal income, you're at the second, 3 million or more, you're at the third, and that's per partner. So we might have, you know, if you have, three partners for them to all be at the highest tier, they'd be doing 9 million of net from the business between salary and, and profit. And by the so, way, we charge the, the partners the same. So they
1: would all pay 10 if they're the highest level. So, you know, inevitable challenge, I find that comes up for a lot of advisory firms, when, by the time they get to multiple advisors that are, that are doing this, like, how do you make sure everyone's quoting fees the same way and that some advisors aren't overquoting or more commonly under underquoting and and underestimating do you do you let them quote their own fees do you do that centrally do they have to like get approval for a fee on a new client like how how do you make sure you actually set the fee at the right level yeah the advisors don't set the fees that's our our managing
2: director who would set the fees they know the guidelines like you just said so if in they're in those guidelines then that's the the fee that they're going to pay unless there's an extraordinary situation, something different. So step one, we do an assessment on a new business owner. And that's where we've got the six-month now, I think it's a four-month wait list. And we charge $25,000 to do the assessment. And that takes our, our team just a lot of time and effort to dig into all the things, the tax returns, the p ls the entity structure, the legal documents, the insurance policies, to really get a lay of the land of All the projects and all the the gaps and all the opportunities for that that business owner. So through that process, we know which of the three categories. But if they're not sure, they go to our managing director and then they say either, this is a person who's making enough money for our lowest tier, but they really should be the, the middle tier and here's why. Or this person's making enough money to be the highest tier, but really have a really simple situation. We're looking through all their stuff, their goals and aspirations, really put them where it's not going to be as much time on our side. So we'd put them in the lowest tier. And then we have an open conversation with the entrepreneur about here's where we, we believe you should be. And they can have some pushback, but if we really believe they should be at a certain tier, we'll just say, no, no, we can't do that. And then we tell them, we revisit. So every six months we do a relationship check-in Because let's say they're the highest tier, and then they sell their business, they have a liquidity event, and all of a sudden their situation gets way more simple without the business. We might move them all the way down to the lowest tier, and we find most business owners will start another business or be involved in something, uh, so they still fit kind of our niche. Uh, But we can move them up or down, or we might move them from the lowest tier to, to a middle tier or a higher tier if they say, hey, we've got LOIs, we're thinking about selling our business. And then six months later, they decide not to do any of the deals. Okay, now let's move you back down to tier one.
1: So I' about say. So if I heard correctly, their prospects who are getting to know the firm have to pay 25,000 dollars for an assessment, like to decide if they're going to become a client. Yeah, I call it, I like to say, so my wife Mimi and I dated for three
2: years and we just celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary last year. So I like to tell business owners, we like to date our clients before we get married. And the dating process is the assessment. But the assessment, they're going to walk away with very specific things that they can do to improve their situation that we believe is going to be way more valuable than the $25,000 fee. Uh, But yeah, if, if it doesn't work out for either one of us, business owners like it because, they want to be able to not be stuck. They want to see right. what we can do and we don't want to be stuck either. We say, so this is the first step, but we're not going to do that first step for free, which you know I did a lot of that early in my career. Uh you know, and we we don't need to. We have a waiting list. If if you want to be if you want to have the assessment done, jump in line if you don't, you want to do something else, do something else.
1: So, I guess I just talk to me about that journey from, you know, we we don't charge anything because we're just trying to get in front of prospects to, you know, show that we can give give value and get their business to like I'm 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 ready to charge them twenty-five thousand dollars for the 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 privilege of dating as as it were. Like just that's a that's a really big shift, like business shift, I mean outright business shift because that's not a small amount of revenue for going through the prospecting process. Nice to get paid to prospect. Uh, but like just how do you get comfortable and shifted to like quote a number like that to a prospect to say like no no you have to go through this just to even make sure we're a good fit and so that we can understand what we would then charge you ongoing if you like this.
2: Well just a process like everything else. It used to be a long time ago when it was just me doing the analysis. And if I wasn't doing the kind of analysis we do today, which I was not, and it didn't take me that long and I was really just trying to get the investment accounts over then I'd be willing to do that. Uh, plus, I was willing to take someone, anyone who had AUM, and if I could do some stuff to show them I was worthwhile, then I'm I'm all in. But that changed as we started doing more and more and more in depth, really detailed analysis on what they're doing. The hours are just so. There's so much time put into it. It just didn't make sense as a business model. And then I had a good friend of mine, a very smart business owner, former tax attorney, who. Went into entrepreneurship and owned businesses, and we had moved from nothing to twenty five hundred dollars. We would charge for the for, for the analysis. I was going
1: to say, I'm assuming the first time you started charging, you didn't go from from free to twenty five grand. So you went from no. free to twenty five hundred.
2: Yes, and so that's what we're charging. And and we're I'm talking to this friend of mine who's very smart in business, and he's asked me kind of the questions you're asking me about. Everything we do with the assessment, everything else, because he's referred us a lot of business uh, and he was trying to get comfortable before he started referring us. And then he said, I, I can't get my head around the 2500 I go, what do you mean? He said, you have to be losing money on the $2,500. I said, oh yeah, we lose a lot of money on the $2,500. He goes, well, why would you build into your business model something that takes a lot of time that you don't make money that you lose money on? And I said, well, I, I just want to have the opportunity to show them what we can do. And he said, yeah, but I have two problems with that. Number one, you're losing money on that part of your business. And number two, I can tell you from my personal situation, if you told me you were going to do all those things for $2,500, I wouldn't do it because I don't believe you. There's no way you can do that for $2,500. So to me, it's a bait and switch. You're just trying to get me in there to try to get me to do something else where you make money. And that makes me uncomfortable. And I said, well, what do you think I should charge? And he said, for what you're doing, $25,000. And after I almost... My heart
1: almost stopped. I said, "You, you when you're at twenty five hundred, like, right. Jim, uh, how about you ten x your feet, man? Come on!" Right. right. And I, I said, uh, "No, I can't do
2: that. I can't do." He said, "Well, you can do that, and you should do that." I said, "No, I can't do that. I can't do that." He goes, "Okay, we'll do something because twenty five hundred is silly." So then we went to six thousand, and then we went to nine thousand, and then we went to twelve thousand. And then we went to 15,000, then we went to 20,000. So over this long period of time, we finally got to the number he originally said, and and that's the right number for us. And I think that's a fair number for us to make a fair profit. And also for the business owner to go, this is serious business. We're not just going to throw you in a retirement account or a e-money plan or a retirement projection. And we're not going to just look through the portfolio and give you some ideas. And I mean, this is a real analysis with real value.
1: If you actually just charge me full value for the thing that's supposed to be so valuable, it's actually mentally easier for me as a business owner because I don't I don't have to play the game of like what comes next, next, next. I can just evaluate the thing in front of me and 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 know and have confidence that you're going to try to deliver value for that because if you don't do a good job for the 25 grand, you definitely ain't getting a hundred thousand dollar retainer.
2: Right. Absolutely. No, that's very true. And you know, that's how business owners think. They don't want to second guess where your motives are. They want to know what they're paying and what they're getting.
1: So I also just want to understand kind of this focus of like founder business owners with at least a million dollars of, of EBITDA, like how strict are you uh, uh, about this? Right. I mean, the, the, the challenge forever for people, even as they start moving into niches, is like how stringent am I really going to be about some of my lines and thresholds? You know, if someone came to me and they only have a half a million dollars of EBITDA, like are, are you and and they say, Jim, I like your services, like are you are you still turning them away? Is there leeway in some of these provisions? Like how 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 firm is, are the thresholds around your your niche of business owners with at least a million dollars of EBITDA?
2: Pretty firm, and we've gotten more firm <laughs> over the last few years because when we let someone in doing half a million, then we find that there's not enough complexity for us, and then the fee becomes an issue to them. We don't want to be a line item on the P and L where every month the business owner has kind of this, oh, oh uh, okay, should we keep paying that? Yeah, we should keep paying that. We don't want them to have stress over that line item. So that's one of the reasons is if they're making enough money. They don't see that as a huge PL item. Uh, and l item. And also, as I said, just the work that we do. So we're pretty strict about it. If someone is doing 800,000 and they're growing very fast and they're going to be there probably by the time they're off the wait list. Uh, yeah, I can get talked into it if they're a really great fit and I like them. Because right now I'm still doing all the intro calls with the entrepreneur business owners. Uh, just to make sure we're getting the right ones in, but yeah, half a million, no, that would be a hard no. They have to be much closer to a million. Uh, but we're pretty firm. Or if they're if they're eight hundred thousand and they're not growing, they're flat. That's a hard no. Or if they're eight hundred thousand and I don't, I just don't get a feeling like they're really in with the concept because I want this to be us working together for the best interest of the entrepreneur. I don't want it to be like we're a vendor and right. they see us like that. We've got to be. A partner in their future.
1: Well, and and again, I get it. Like the whole point is complexity and ongoing complexity. And just if the dollars aren't big enough, the complexity, or at least the ongoing complexity, doesn't tend to be there, right? They might come for a year or two, and you help them solve some stuff. But if they're not growing and the dollars aren't aren't high enough, like you'll solve their problems and they'll go away in a year or two. Like great, you solve their problems, but they don't become long term clients. The long term ones have bigger numbers that are still getting bigger because they have complexity and the complexity only adds as they get bigger. So you, you, get, you get more opportunities to show value ongoing.
2: That's exactly right. And if you think about it in a different way, and this is not anywhere near the importance of what we do. If, if you think about people who hire a house manager who meets the plumber and makes sure that the landscaping people are doing it right and you know, brings the groceries in, all that kind of stuff, there's a certain level of income where someone's going to do that. And they're going to say, I would never get rid of that service. There's another level of income where someone's like, that's not that complicated. And besides, that would be a big number to hire someone to meet the plumber. I can meet the plumber. It's the same kind of thing. Someone who says, I don't want to talk to my insurance agent. I don't want to talk to my CPA at tax time. I'd rather do these other things. And they have this opportunity cost. That's unlike business owners that are doing small. And they're like, "If, if I'm doing a million net personal income. And I can double that to 2 million because I'm not messing around with all this other stuff that I know is important, but I don't have interest in. That's the big win for them. So it's not just the money savings, the tax savings, the savings on legal fees, all those things, but it's the time savings that allows them to redirect that or even, oh, I get to see my kids more. I get to take take another vacation because as you and I know as business owners, a lot of times we're the hardest working people in the organization, and it would be mm-hmm. nice to have some some time to actually do some other things. So they value that a lot too.
1: Yeah, I mean, just when you get to someone that's at a million dollars of of income, you know, call it roughly two thousand working hours in a year. Like every you know, every minute of their time throughout the year, like their their time's worth the equivalent of five hundred dollars an hour. And that, like, that's as though they could do income generating activity with every every hour of the of the working day all year long, which you which you still can't really do. So, like, you know, the these are folks whose time value is easily five hundred to thousand dollars an hour and 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 up. Some will value it higher than that uh, if they're in if they're in growth mode. And so, yeah, all of a sudden now you're like, do you have enough complexity? I could save you literally just a couple of hours a month. It's like, oh, my Lord, like the first time you take a phone call and follow up email from my CPA and my attorney in the same month, you have saved me four hours <laughs> of right. right, like not a not a high bar at and, it's gonna take and, and bigger and bigger numbers just get bigger.
2: Absolutely. And it's going to take them probably four times as long to get to the same outcome, right. trying to deal with their accountant or their attorney or their insurance agent, because they just don't even know the questions to ask and what, how they should think about it, you know, or no time's going toward that. And then there's usually a mess of all these different things, uh, just because they're what we call the ostrich. They're just ignoring and avoiding like, oh, I'll get to that later. I'll get to that later.
1: So I guess that I'm wondering, like, what does this look like from a, I don't know, a, a churn retention perspective. Because so I know for a lot of firms they're like a lot of firms have been looking at retainer models are concerned. Like, is it going to be as quote unquote sticky as AUM if you don't literally have the portfolio as the main as the main anchor point? Uh, you know, are they going to want to keep paying these fees at some point? Are they going to look at the line item and say, geez, that's a lot of money. What have you done for me lately? So like I don't know how how deeply you track this, but what is does what churn look like as you've been building and scaling this model?
2: yeah it is not as sticky as aum so the people who say that are absolutely right aum is a lot stickier and i think and you could tell me michael i believe aum is something like a 95% retention on average is that kind of number you yeah know?
1: that 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 neighborhood uh, uh even the quote unquote bad firms are often at least in the in the low 90s uh, if you look at some of the data around brokerage firms and and a lot of the the high touch aum firms like i've seen numbers that get to 97 97 and a half Close to ninety eight percent. It's hard to get much above that because you literally get to like mortality tables, like right. the rate of death of a large number of clients. It's right. a non trivial number, right. uh, So you you can only get so high on this, right? So just to
2: give an example, our retention is more like eighty five percent. So we're clearly a lot less sticky, uh, but still pretty sticky uh, because of what we do. And, and part of the reason why we're not as sticky as, as you just called it, it's, it's so much easier for someone to leave us. And with business owners, they're much more volatile than, let's say you have a practice that's using retirees, right? They're, they, they have the volatility of the stock market, but they don't have volatility of their life and of their income the way a business owner does. So if a business owner, let's say they're an online business and they use paid advertising and Google or Facebook change their algorithm, they could go from making millions of dollars to barely keeping the lights on. And if that goes on too long, often we're the ones that go to the entrepreneur and say hey let's press pause until we find out if you're gonna make it you don't need to be paying us you need to try to keep a couple of employees so that can right. happen and I guess it's
1: like you're you're tied to business cycle and what goes on in the economy a little more directly right I got to imagine there's a couple of business owners that you lost in the pandemic because their businesses evaporated in the in the pandemic if you were in the wrong industry like that was really really ugly for a year or two. Very much.
2: And in fact, it's funny you mentioned that because when COVID hit, we were really concerned about, hey, all they have to do is say, I don't want to do this. This is my last month with you. And they're out. It's not like they got to figure out where to move the portfolio and the capital gains and all that stuff. Uh, They just did just say, hey, we're going to not continue for now. And there was one of our clients and he was right in the worst place. So he coaches gym owners how to build their business and
1: oh.
2: <laughs> right so he had a 80% drop in revenue in one month during covid when all the gyms across the country were closed down 80% drop in revenue so my managing partner came to me and said he's going to fire us for sure he's going to fire us and a couple of weeks later he called me up and I thought yeah this is the call and he said yeah. would you go on my podcast i said sure so the next <laughs> month i go down to go on his podcast and the first thing he said to me is he said, when this hit and we lost 80% of our revenue, the first thing we did is we sat down and said, what can we cut? And the first thing me and my executive team said is, well, who we can't cut is due wealth. We can't cut dual wealth management. They're just too important to us. We'll figure a way through, but we have to keep them. So I came back to the office and I had a big smile on my face and I told the managing director, I don't think we're getting fired. <laughs> uh, and the funny thing about that is this guy, and this is where I love entrepreneurs, their revenue was way down for the year, but they actually made the same profit because he pivoted so fast and started teaching gym owners, how do you make money when your gym's closed? How can you do virtual classes and all this kind of stuff? And and he had to cut, get he got rid of half of his employees. It was a terrible year, but it turned out he made the same exact money and profit at a much lower revenue because he cut expenses and because he pivoted so fast. But that was a good example of where we said, hey, maybe it's stickier than we thought it would be, because we thought we could, we were factoring in, yeah. let's, if we lose half our clients, how do how do we function? And we ended up losing very little. And because of PPP and the CARES Act and all that kind of stuff, we ended up getting a lot of clients, business owners searching for someone to help them to fill right. out the PPP uh, paperwork, to find out if they qualified, to help them navigate all the twists and turns of COVID. It was actually a good thing for our business, which I wouldn't have guessed that. Before it happened, that was that was like the stock market crash of 2008 for a, f- a fixed fee retainer model. I think.
1: So, so how do you think about just the dynamics of hey, man? If you just were an AUM firm, like you, you, you could probably get a model that has higher retention. Like, do you, do you think about that? Is there a pull to that? Are you happy where you are? There's like- zero pull to that. And the reason why is
2: when we went this route it was Mimi and I sitting down and saying, and it was really, I started it when I said, you know what? I, I don't want to work with just anybody because who gets me excited are the business owners. I love working with business owners. And when we started focusing on that and niching in that, then I started saying, well, who knows how to serve business owners the best? And we'd been serving them for a long, long time, but who would be the very best? And then I heard about this concept called a family office. And someone explained to me that a billionaire hires all the needed tax, legal insurance, and investment professionals as full-time employees working for that one billionaire in his or her family. And that's how they manage their wealth. So I started asking around and by chance, just by chance, a very good friend of mine is close friends with the grandson of a New York billionaire. He connected us, we hit it off. And once he learned I was really interested in the family office thing, and this is years before people were talking about it. Now I hear a a lot more people talk about the family office concept. So he said, if you want, and you want to fly back to New York, I'll get you a meeting with our CEO of the family office. And I said, absolutely. So I flew back to New York, had breakfast with this guy, but we had a three and a half hour breakfast. And at the end, he said, Jim, you're really interested in this stuff. If you want to stay for a few days, I'll show you our systems and our processes and everything no. else. So I said, I am in. And at the end of that time, I'm on the plane flying home back to Phoenix and I am I have all these notes and I'm looking through all my notes and it just struck me like, an epiphany. This isn't just the best structure for a billionaire. This is the best structure for any entrepreneur. There's just one problem. You need probably north of $400 million before you can build your own family office because they're very expensive to build and to run, but they're so good. They're so valuable. That's why all the the billionaires have them, you know, Bezos and Gates and Oprah Winfrey and Sarah Blakely. So I thought, well, I wonder if we could create one first for our own family, because we don't have $400 million, because we wanted that for ourselves as business owners, but maybe we could do that for other entrepreneurs as well. So then we started figuring out how can we do that and make it cost effective? And then we figured out that instead of having all those full-time employees, if we can just evaluate the current team, get rid of the ones that are not A players, build a team of A players and run that team, we in essence have the family office outcomes that billionaires are get, getting at a fraction of the cost. And then we just had to figure out what's that complexity level Of business owner where this makes sense, and so we had to reprice everything as we went along. And I think we're in the right place right now. It feels good. We feel like we're not getting the wrong kind of business owner, as as you kind of mentioned earlier, that's saying I'm making four hundred grand. I I really want to join your thing. You know, the pricing makes them feel like ah, yeah, you're right, Jim. Like when I tell them you're not ready for us, they go yeah, yeah, I think you're right. You know, you know, let's check back in in a year, see how you're doing. Where it used to be someone making three or four hundred thousand dollars, we're really trying to convince me to to work with us <laughs> till we got the pricing right. So I think, I believe the pricing is right. The value is there. And along the way, in answer to your original question, we fell in love with the idea when we sorted that all out, started asking ourselves, we're business owners, how would we build this model for ourselves? And we came up with this model, which was, we don't want anyone taking a commission or selling a product. We don't want anyone trying to drive us to their AUM platform you know, we, we don't want long-term contracts. We just want to know what we're paying. We want that fiduciary only to represent us and only to get paid by us. And then once we created that model, I went to two people I know with a lot of experience in financial services. One actually built one of the first multi-billion dollar RIAs in the 90s and sold it for a bunch of money. And I remember I went to both of these people I respect and I showed them my model and both of them said, Jim, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> I said what? And it was kind of deflating because Mimi and I were so excited. It just felt so right. And I said, why is it a bad idea? And they both said two things. Number one, kind of did the sticky thing. Uh, you know, clients aren't sticky. They can leave you anytime. That's not a good model. And the, the one gave me an example. He said, take Wells Fargo, for example, he said Wells Fargo has a lot of banking customers that don't like Wells Fargo, but they can't leave because they've got their checking account, their business account, <laughs> their portfolio, their yeah. line of credit, their mortgage. It's just too hard to leave. And here was when I thought about that. One of the two things he said, here's how I thought about it, And this is probably not the, the way to think about it. But some, sometimes this is how I make life decisions. I said to myself, if Mimi ever said the only reason I stay married to Jim is because it's too hard to divorce him. <laughs> I don't like the sound of that. I want her to be with me. And by the way, our life's gotten pretty complicated. It probably would be yeah. hard to divorce me. But I want her to be with me every day because she wants to be with me, not because she's so entangled with me she can't get out. And this has been another advantage. We can fire someone we don't like. If you're in the AUM model, it's very hard to fire someone you don't like. So the second thing he said was, besides the sticky thing, is you're giving up so much revenue opportunity in ways you can make money that you're just going to hamstring yourself uh, and not going to be able to make as much money doing that kind of a model. So, those are two things. And Mimi and I sat down, we talked, well, okay, they have valid points. And then we said, who cares? You know, I started out as a public school math teacher making $20,000 a year. We were already making way more money than we ever imagined. And we just said, you know what? It feels good in our heart. It feels like the right thing to do. It feels like something we would love to have as a business like that. So, even if AUM stick here, even if someone could demonstrate that I would make more money and we would make more money. I feel in my heart, Mimi feels this way, that this is our passion, this is our calling, is to serve these business owners in a way that they're not being served other places, and to be able to hire and recruit advisors who want to do real planning, meaningful work, work that matters, work that makes a difference, and, now that we're in ESOP, have an ownership piece so we're growing the value of this enterprise together. That feels fantastic. And not for a second have I felt like, oh, we should go back to that AUM model. That, that
1: seems like that's a better way to do it. No. So help us understand how this works from the, I guess like the advisor hiring end. You know, most advisory firms struggle to some extent, like you have to find this semi-magical unicorn balance of skills, like someone that's got enough technical knowledge and expertise that just they can, you know, they can bring the expertise they can bring the the the, the knowledge goods uh to 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 find planning opportunities for clients. But then you also have to be a really skilled communicator to to be able to everything from talk clients off the the proverbial ledge to just managing the relationship to, you know, it's great if you know a good strategy, but can you actually deliver it to a client in the way that they're excited about and want to implement it? So there's this like there's this domain of technical, and then there's this domain of communication. And that in and of itself is a hard thing to hire for. I feel like you've got this whole other layer, which is then there's also this like project management, people management thing of holding the outside professionals accountable and making sure that everybody's doing their tasks and checking things off and that things are moving through the pipeline and like that overgeneralizing a little bit. I feel like that's a whole other kind of skill set, even aside from, you know, CFP technical knowledge and aside from uh, just the communication dynamics and the communication skills. So they how do you think about typical hires across these dimensions? Like, are you hiring for one more than the other? Do you have some kind of team structure where someone's the project manager person, someone else is the technical, you know, CFP knowledge kind of person? Like, how how do you manage the demand across not just through two, but three distinct kinds of skill sets to be able to deliver on this?
2: Yeah, it's not easy. And really, we we have learned over time, first of all, it's just like when you're trying to think who your client is. And often I see financial advisors not really go deep enough on who their client is and niching, and I know you've preached niching for your entire career, and I yet I still see most financial advisory groups are generalists and most financial advisors are generalists. So the same thing with niching on your particular client, niching on the exact type of advisor we need for the firm. So understanding that avatar was a big step originally we thought we'll hire someone with 20 years of experience. And what we found is people with 20 years of experience are expensive, they have baggage, and they really don't know as much as most people think they know. A lot of them have one year of experience repeated 20 times. And I know because I've interviewed a lot of these people. And when I ask questions like, tell me something specifically on a tax return that you have helped a client saving taxes or an idea that you brought to the CPA. And I'll hear things like, well, the tax inefficient investments were in the regular account and I had to move it into the IRA. And we did Roth conversions and we did tax loss harvesting. And right away, I know that they know nothing about tax planning for a business owner. So we realize we have to train and teach people to do what we do here. And so our kind of ideal avatar is usually somewhere between Two and five years of experience actually at a planning firm. If someone's working for a big brokerage firm, a big insurance company, or a big bank, they don't do the deep planning. So it has to be some sort of firm that focuses on planning and they have to be hungry because our advisors and our culture is about one of our core values is hustle to GSD. And we'll just say for the podcast, GSD stands for getting stuff done. Right. But it's hustle. So we want people who want to hustle, they want to make a career, they want to make a difference. And we tell people when we're interviewing all the time, this is not a job where you, if you want to come in and put your feet up on the desk and make the most per hour you can possibly make, this is not the home for you. We pay our advisors well, but we tell our advisors that they're very talented and they can always find somewhere else that's going to pay them more. We're going to pay them well, but they're also going to get the ownership and the ESOP. So over time, we believe they'll have more wealth creation working here than anywhere else. But the highest income, you can always find someone to pay you more, especially if you don't want to work this hard. In the beginning, it is massive immersion. So we've created an online course for our advisors. We use Kajabi to create that. We have quizzes along the way. We can monitor their progress. We have Do Wealth You that meets every Friday to go over case studies and planning opportunities. We have one-pagers on all kinds of planning opportunities in a library that we keep growing. Once a week, every advisor blocks off an hour to pick one thing that they're interested in And they go deep on that and then do a one-pager of what they learned. And then we put that in the library together. So we're constantly growing and learning together. Curiosity leads to excellence is one of our other core values. We've got five core values that we push very hard. Uh, So training them up, we'll say in six to 18 months, you're going to be an advisor like you've never met in your career when it comes to serving a business owner, not all niches, but when it comes to serving a business owner. So the first thing was understanding who are we looking for? And then how do we get them to be amazing at what they do? And I could tell you stories of what I've seen in transformation of these young advisors who work with us from when they started to where they are today, the conversations they can have with tax attorneys, asset protection attorneys, CPAs, insurance agents. It's amazing and exciting. And our team loves it. They love that kind of thing. So that's one piece. The other piece is how do you find these people and hire them? And for a long time, we were using recruiting firms and we've had several and they all tell us the same thing. And then you start working with them is they get paid a percentage of the first year, the first year salary you pay an employee. And it's usually something like 20 or 25%. So right away, their incentive is to get us to hire someone for the highest possible salary. And yep. the, other, the other thing is, you've probably been through this. And the other thing is the way they recruit people to for us is I think they take the ro- road of least resistance. So what they do is they reach out on LinkedIn or whatever and they say, hey, <clears throat> would you like to make more money? Because if you want to make more money, I
1: have an opportunity for you. And so what happens is because they because they talked up the salary for you to be competitive, then they pitch the salary to the candidate to try to get them to move because of money and then they get paid the most possible money for doing that because they get paid a percentage of the salary. That's exactly right. So it ends up this bad deal and then
2: it attracts advisors who only care about money and as I tell our advisors all the time, we're going to pay you well, but you're not going to be the highest of what you could get in the industry you can find because we're also building enterprise value for you and for us. We want advisors who they want to grow. They want to do meaningful work. They want to learn and and find interesting things they didn't know before that they can apply with these business owners. So we said, that's not working. And we had three at one time, we had three going because we just couldn't find and hire the good people (laughs) fast enough. And that's where we got our director of operations in this last year, who's just brilliant. And he the last company before us, he took from 15 employees to 150 employees. And the first problem they had, hiring and recruiting. And he solved that for him. So that was one reason he was attractive to us. And when we were talking to him, when he first came in and looked at everything we're doing, he said two things. He said, one thing, you have a waiting list of six months and you do no marketing? (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. I guess that's our situation. Uh, But the other thing he said is, your are hiring and recruiting is your bottleneck, but you're thinking of it like an HR problem. It's not an HR problem. It's a sales and marketing problem. The same way you think of a sales and marketing problem for getting new entrepreneurs, you need to think of getting new advisors, that you need to market to them what you have and what's unique to them that will get the right advisor excited and attract them to you rather than you going out there and having recruiters just offer more money left and right to try to get them to come over for more money. So he said, I'll fix that in 90 days. We're like, we've been working on this for a couple of years. Are you crazy? You're not going to fix this in 90 days. I said, how sure are you, you'll fix this in 90 days? He said, 100%. That's a, last time I checked, that's a pretty high percentage, hundred percent.
1: Yeah. It's kind of gutsy. You got to at least say like 98%. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really sure. Hey, you know, stuff always happens. Like I'm really sure 98.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And sure enough in days he fixed it. So he created a funnel, a marketing funnel, that attracts advisors based on our culture based on our vision based on what we're doing for business owners And then he has, you know, they watch a video that immediately tells them, hey, if all you care about is money and not working hard, run the other direction. This is going to be the hardest job you ever do. And if you're the right fit, it'll be the job you love more than anything you've ever done in this industry. It'll be the career path that is yours forever. Uh, You know, and so they go through all these funnels and they have tests they take along the way. He uses a predictive index, both the regular and the cognitive uh, predictive index. He scores him. He has a whole scoring thing after they go through all these exercises and things like uh, school. So this is an A plus candidate fitting on all these areas, including culture, including the cognitive piece, including the experience. Here's a C minus. So we're not going to talk to the C minus. Uh, and just to give you an example, the, the and we're constantly hiring uh, and bringing on new people because of our growth. And the last two positions we hired for associate advisors, two thousand applicants started at the top of the funnel. To get to the two and these two are incredible advisors hungry smart driven uh and it's just night and day versus what we were doing before with these recruiters uh and really it was just me and mimi and our managing director doing interviews and trying to ask the right questions and look at their resume and really it was just woefully inept uh, but of course when you're growing a business you think you're doing the best you can till you find a better way and then you go oh duh <laughs> we should have actually uh, attempted to do something that matters and not just go oh yeah we'll do what everybody else in the world does hire a recruiter and do a google search for interview questions
1: so help me understand more just what your director of operations built like do, i mean like you said you have a a funnel but what is that what does that actually mean like there's a a mailing list of career opportunities and you drip market to them like other types of funnels is this something about the how the application process works like what what exactly got built that now you're getting you know 2000 applications for an advisor position
2: yeah so he uses linkedin professional and then the the system he created will actually search for certain qualities. So CFP or CFP candidate would be one, certain number of years in the business, uh, a company they work for that's not a brand name that you would see out there. So it filters through and then it pulls or collects kind of a pool of the people that look like they would be good candidates. And then it pings them with some message about, hey, if you're interested in this type of work with this type of career path, it's hard, it's in-depth planning, those kinds of things. Then they opt into the funnel. And the first thing they do is get a video from our director of operations that kind of spells out in a short video, really he built it, he said, to turn off more people than it turns on. And that's one, I think, problem, whether it's marketing for new hires or marketing for new clients, is your marketing should turn off many more people than it turns on because otherwise you're not niched enough. You're not really going after the right people. And so that's the one...
1: The ones who break through that filter are like, they must really want this. Yes,
2: by the end, because then they have different tests that they have to take. Even before they talk to a human being, they have to take the predictive index and the cognitive piece, and they have to do all this testing before they ever talk to a person. And then once we're like, okay, this looks like a potential candidate, then they get to start to talk to human beings. Uh, By the end of the process, the last two we hired – They're leaning forward saying, please pick me, please pick me. I want this position. So it's a much better way for someone to enter your organization than with their arms crossed going, okay, I know I'm making more money, but what else am I going to get here that keeps me happy? And that doesn't bode for a good culture. I mean, you want just the way I show up every day to want to grow and to serve and to do better for our business owners and for our team. I want our team to get better. I want to support our team. And and that's what makes a great culture is everyone is saying, what can I do to make this team better? Not leaning back with their arms crossed going, okay, what's in it for me? That doesn't work.
1: So this initial outreach that he does, so like he uses LinkedIn professional, he does the search to get down to a list of people that might be interested. And I think you said he pings them. So I'm presuming that's like a, a LinkedIn mail, like that's a that's an outreach through LinkedIn to say, hey, we've got this opportunity, here's some info about it if you're interested, be, please go to this video and check it out. And then at the end of the video, it tells them what to do next. If they want to keep moving forward to an assessment like that, is that the flow?
2: Yes, exactly. Right. And then sometimes, I mean, lately we're getting people that find us for whatever reason and they go to our website and they go to the career page, which is, we're always hiring there. And then that puts them right in the top of the funnel. So it can go either way, you know, us reaching out or them finding us.
1: And I guess at a high level, like I mean, you're putting them through a lot of stuff uh, because they're getting the like they're getting the outreach. Then they go to the video that you know they they have to watch. Hopefully, it's interesting, but like they have to watch the video. Then they have to take a bunch of assessments. Like you're putting them through a lot of work before they get to talk to anyone. Which, classically, to me, like I'd get really nervous. Like you're going to lose too many good people because they just they they don't want to you know they they don't want to go that deep with you because they're still getting to know you as well. But I guess the flip side is you're, you're casting such a broad net on LinkedIn in the first place because you might screen 2,000 people who fit the parameters that like, hey, it's totally cool. If we do this and it bothers 99% of the people that we, that we reach out to, we've still got 20 really highly qualified, highly motivated candidates, which would be a better pool than most people hire from.
2: Absolutely. That's the way we think about it. Yeah, certainly we probably lose some good people through that, but it's the same thing with business owners. We lose some business owners that say, I don't want to do an assessment and pay you 25 grand. Let's just start on the monthly and we'll figure it out. And I'll tell you if it's a value to me. Well, you know what? I understand that. And just maybe we lose a good client by doing that. Uh, But in the end, I feel like there's plenty of young, hungry advisors who want an opportunity like this. We feel like our culture is And that's really due to Mimi. Mimi is very focused on our culture and the team. And uh, that's an important thing. We fly everyone from all over the country once a quarter to get together in person, do some team building, go through all the numbers. When we did the ESOP, we were very transparent. We showed all the employees. We did the transaction at a $31 million valuation, which by the way, I did the math as a teacher. I would have had to work 1500 years to create that kind of value. Um, But at any rate, Uh, We're very transparent about those kinds of things. And we know it's not for everybody. This is not a position for everybody, but we do feel we have something special, something to offer. And I have to tell you, when I was a young advisor, I would have jumped at this opportunity. This would have been exactly what I wanted because I always wanted to do planning and I wanted to do complex, interesting planning and I wanted to to work hard. I was hungry, uh, but I just never had those opportunities until we decided just to create it.
1: When I'm struck, even by what you're noting around ESOP valuations, I think you said you were you were a little over seven million revenue last year. You're you're coming in for uh, ten million uh, this year. So you know you're talking about a like four times trailing, almost three times forward twelve month revenue as a as a valuation on the firm from an external valuation. Just I'm struck for all the advisors. I I still hear a lot say. Yeah, but you know, do will retainer-based firms still get similar valuations? Like, it's a very good valuation multiple on the business, I, I guess, in part because if you grow from seven seven million to ten million in revenue, like you're growing at forty percent. Yep. Yeah, and and, it, and that's all. I presume like, that's pretty much all organic growth because like y- your revenue is not going up because the markets are up because you're not an AUM firm, so you don't go. You don't go up when the markets go up. You're like you have to actually win new clients and move them up tiers to make the revenue grow. So that's like that's all that's all client growth.
2: That's exactly right. And it was interesting. The valuation firm, they really had trouble getting their head around it because they kept when we first sat with them to do the first interview. They're asking all these AUM questions. You know, how much AUM do we have? And and we still have AUM from from years ago, and we kept it as an optional service. And we, just, is, we Is snap. some of your
1: revenue AUM then? You do still have some.
2: Yeah. So that last year, 85% was from retainer fixed fee and 15% was AUM. And it'll be less this year. It goes down every year because we're not actively seeking assets. Not one of our advisors working with a client has a, a quota or an expectation. There's no biz dev by any of our advisors. Uh, no one even gets acknowledged if, if assets right. come over. So what we did is we kept that because we found entrepreneurs sometimes need portfolio management, don't want to do it themselves. Cause tell them if you want to do it yourself, we'll help you set, set up a betterment or a personal capital or a Vanguard or a Schwab. And we'll kind of coach you on it, but you got to do it. Uh, or sometimes they look for options and the options are expensive. I believe if you're just doing investment management, 1% is too much, you know? And so We're usually 60 to 70% cheaper because we only price the AUM to cover our costs. We didn't price it for any profit. So that's why we don't care whether any of the AUM comes over. Um, So there will always be an AUM component because when we looked at just getting rid of it, we just got pushback from business owners that said, well, what if I need you for that? So we said, we'll just do a super low cost no profit us type AUM level. But when they looked at the growth rate, they looked at the retention, they looked at a six month waiting list with no marketing. Um, They looked at the unique offering and the product market fit the way our offering fits what the small business owner who's making enough money really wants. Um, That's how we got the valuation that we did is for all those reasons that you know, make a valuation go up. So yeah, I believe retainer models and fixed monthly fee models can be worth a lot of money, you know, case in point, uh, but you've got to have all the other things, right? And it's no different than even an AUM model. If your, if your revenue has been flat and is only moving with the markets, you're not going to get as good a valuation as if you're growing at 40% a year, because that has to come from organic growth.
1: And then how does compensation work for advisors? Just for so many firms I I see, particularly in the in the the scaled up AUM world, advisor comp is very commonly tied to a- assets that you're you're managing in your client base, or AUM fees that you're you're uh, tied to for your client base. Are are you a are you a percentage of revenue structure still? Are you a like straight flat salary structure? Like how does how does compensation work in in your model?
2: It's salary. And then bonus based on two things. It's based on retention and it's based on core values, demonstrating the core values in the company. And that's it. There's there's no other you know tie to revenue or anything like that. And the reason why is because we work as a team and we have kind of these pods, it would be hard to separate revenue per person type of thing. In addition to the fact that uh, I think running a business, it's hard to do that rather than you know the salary plus the bonuses. And the way our advisors are making more money, quite frankly, is they're getting promoted. Because we're growing so fast, the path of going from associate advisor to advisor to senior advisor is a real path. It's not like you're going to have to sit there for 10 years. If you're hustling, you can get promoted and make more money that way. But yeah, right now it's salary plus bonus split between retention. Are the clients staying? And and so I guess retention would, and you know you could factor that into that's based on revenue because retention you know goes right to revenue. And then core values, which again, it's really important for our culture that we're demonstrating the core values.
1: So, what surprised you the most as you've gone down this path of building an advisory business?
2: Uh, it's, uh, two things that surprised me the most is number one, how well. I guess I'll say three things. So, the first thing is, you know, every great great idea is great on paper, and the amount of work and effort it's taken to figure this model out. I mean, when Mimi and I came up with the model, I, this is perfect. This is what we would want for ourselves. Then we found out managing those things—you know, the people, the process, and the projects. In that kind of a deep level is incredibly hard, incredibly time intensive. It, as you said, it's yeah. it takes this technical knowledge, but also this personality of being able to, to manage people and have relationships and talk to the clients, but also talk to the attorneys and accountants. We're now, we're, we're running the show. So the CPAs and attorneys, they figured out very quickly that we're the ones that can hire and fire them we're running the show. It's not like often in the old system where I'd feel like the CPA or the attorneys really, when the when they're involved, they're really running the show and I'm taking a side right. position. Um, so really hard. Mimi and I have often contemplated if we knew how hard this was going to be, I'm not sure we would have built it. It was just like, you know, we went periods of time where we'd say, it'd be nice to have a Saturday or Sunday off, you know, after months and months. <laughs> so just really brutally hard. That would be one thing. I was also surprised at how Once we got the model figured out how attractive it really is to business owners, almost like I'd be surprised at how many people who make a lot of money have a a house manager, right? It's probably more than I would think because it's so attractive. So it was really surprising how attractive it was that I didn't have to try to go out and market. It just had to be, we get a few really well-known entrepreneurs. And they tell other entrepreneurs who are their friends who say, yeah, I want that too. That sounds great. And then the third thing was once we had that piece figured out, then, okay, now we just have to go find advisors that want to do the work. And then how hard it was to find the right fit advisors who are hungry and want to make a difference and want to do this kind of work. And that's one reason why we did the ESOP. You know, When we looked at once you get a business to a certain perspective, because I can tell you for years, I never thought we'd have a sellable business. I just thought it was kind of a, you know, a little boutique shop, and mm. at some point you get some young person to come in and pay you out over time, or something like that. Uh, and I did get—we got offered eight years ago. We got offered three million dollars for our company for, by from a private bank. And ah, uh, nah, I don't think now's the right time to sell. And so we ten times the value of the company in eight years, and our goal is to ten times the value again in the next ten years with the people we have in place now. And you know, I think we can do it. At first, that sounded crazy till our director of operations and our managing partner kind of walked me back from 10 years to today and I said, "Yeah, you know, I actually think we could do that." You know, so we we started looking at exit and a lot of PE firms were showing interest. And then it hit us. We love this model and a PE firm is going to destroy this model cuz they're going to come in and they're going to say just like that friend of mine, "Uh, your clients aren't sticky enough and there's other ways you can make money. Let's change this and let's get rid of half your people and roll them up into our deal and all the things that happen when PE firms buy advisory firms, especially ours. And we just said, you know, we don't have kids. This is kind of our legacy. How can we continue it? And how can we also get money off the table? And then how can we help our employees benefit too? And so we've done the math and we believe, and we tell our team this, every one of our employees today is become, going to become a millionaire or a multimillionaire in 10 years with this company. And that's a huge goal. And something that really excites us is the people that help us get there, they get a piece too. So for all those reasons, the ESOP was a good fit for us, and and that's what we went down that path. And then we got a valuation that a lot of advisory firms would probably be surprised at. But as I said, if you have great product market fit or service market fit, I guess in this case, and you have a a great growth rate and you have retention and you have a a model that's sustainable that we feel like is going to continue on for a long, long time, uh, then you can get a high valuation for a retainer model.
1: So what was the low point for you on this journey?
2: I can remember it. It was when we first started the company in 1999, and I didn't know how to market the company, what I was going to do, and I was flipping out because for the first time, I had to pay for the assistant. I had to pay for the computers. I had to pay for the office space. <laughs> so all of a sudden, these expenses that I kind of knew, but you know, kind of knowing and actually knowing are two different things. And I said, man, it is expensive to run a business. And that brokerage firm was covering a lot of my expenses. Uh, so then I had this panic, this almost like a meltdown. And actually, Mimi was great. And, you know, Mimi's family immigrated from Korea when she was five years old and she was the oldest. So she was helping her dad run his company when she was like eight years old because she was the first to read and write English. And so she is very helpful along the process. And she said to me, she said, honey, if we fail, We'll just sell the home in Scottsdale. We'll move back to a little place in Gilbert. It'll be fine. We had a great time then. We'll have a great time now. Doesn't matter. And that helped me a lot, but I was still freaking out. So I started asking advisors, looking at like, how can I bring in clients? Cause I got to bring in clients quick or I'm going to be out of business. And so someone said, you know what? You should do these, you know, free dinners where people come in and then you set appointments and then you schedule appointments and you get clients. Yep. So I said, okay, well, how do I do that? And they said, well, you mail to a wealthy area. So here in the Phoenix Scottsdale area, one of the wealthiest areas is Paradise Valley, which by the way, I found out is a terrible place to mail. No one, no one goes to a free dinner who lives in Paradise Valley hardly. So I I mailed 10,000 pieces, which was a lot of money uh, in those days to Paradise Valley. And I go to the Marie calendars that's kind of on the edge of Paradise Valley. And I go in there and and I'm asking these people who've done it before, how many people can I expect from 10,000 mailings? They said, oh, you'll probably get 80 to 100 people. So I go into Marie calendars. They have this private room, this big private room. I said, how many can fit in that room if I reserve that whole room? And they said, we can fit about 60. I said, oof, okay. Well then I'm going to need to do it for two nights. I'm going to need a room for two nights because I'm going to have, you know, probably a hundred. So they said, okay. So I had the room reserved, everything else. I had this big projector, right? With a screen you pull out. I had my, my projector and my screen and my computer, and I had my presentation. I was ready to go. Well. As we get closer to the date, I realize those reservations are not coming in. And so I have to call Marie Calendars and tell them, you know what? For the first night, I've got five people coming. And the second night, I've got three people coming. Oh, no. (laughs) And, you know, the Marie Calendars, when you're getting scolded by Marie Calendars, you know, about how, you know, well, you're not going to get the private room. And so they put me in a corner of the restaurant. So I was in a corner of a restaurant with these five people the first night. We sat at the same table. And. I have I pulled my big screen up. I had my projector on the edge of the table. You know, the other tables were looking at us like we were crazy.
1: Uh, you know, <laughs> so you're down. just you're just at a table in like the corner of the main area and doing a presentation. yes. <laughs> Off a little screen on the table. Okay. Yes, but
2: I had a full screen, you know, one that you would pull up. And, <laughs> and I, I just, I was so committed. I'm like, what else would I do? I got to show the pre. So I pulled my big screen up there in the corner and other tables kind of watching the presentation as I go through. Uh, I was very embarrassed, you know. And, and so one thing I did is I had tickets. I was going to do a raffle and whoever won the raffle, I'd give a free pie. So I'm passing out five tickets right to these five people. They've got a pretty good chance of winning. And I start my presentation. This guy raises his hand. I'm thinking he's going to have a good question. And I said yes. And he said, "By the way, do we get to keep the pie tin deposit?" I said, "Excuse me. Do we get to keep the pie tin deposit?" So I turn to the other people at the table. I say, "Well, what is he talking about?" And they said, "Oh, well, when you get a pie, it's in a pie tin. And if you bring back the pie tin, they'll give you fifty cents back on the cost of the pie because of the pie tin." And I remember thinking, I have all this education, I have an MBA, (laughs) you know, I was math department chair at a a high school, and here I am deciding whether to give away a free 50 cent pie tin. I said, yes, sir, you can keep the pie tin deposit, you can (laughs) go crazy on that. Uh, So I remember at the end of the night, and by the way, from that seminar, I got one appointment, no clients. So at the end of the night, I'm walking out of Marie Calendars, there's no one left in the building except the workers there was just a few cars in the parking lot I remember I'm walking out carrying my huge projector and my big screen and I stopped and I just looked around and it just hit me I said to myself this is going to be a low point in my life
1: this (laughs) is tough I mean I was there's
0: nothing
2: like like
1: knowing it in the moment like oh wait this is the low point right here
2: I said this is I, I I don't know I was I was so scared I was terrified I thought you know, I I was raised from a family that like my responsibility was make sure that the family's OK financially. And even though my wife was like, we're going to be fine, I just felt like I'm a failure. I'm going to be financially ruined because I decided to be independent and go out on my own and, and I can't do it. So that was the moment. That was my low point is in the parking lot of Marie Callender's uh, after I, I, I probably should have said I need the pie tin back because that 50 cents might have helped me at the time.
1: So. So like, what do you know now you wish you could go back and tell you 20 plus years ago? The first thing
2: would be niche, niche heavily, find out the kind of work you love to do. Find out the type of client that needs that kind of work and go narrow focused all in on that. Because I heard about niching. You've talked about niching for a long time, Mm -hmm. but I was so afraid to do it because I thought, ah, if I do that, I'm going to miss out on all these other clients But the the truth is, when you're really niched and you really know that work well, those people are attracted to you. You don't have to work so hard to get them because they want to work with you. So I'd say that would be one thing is to niche heavily early and don't worry about it. Just go, it'll take care of itself. But not just a niche where it's like, that would be a way I could make money, but niche in a way where you learn how to do the planning. You grow, you train and educate yourself. So that truly you're a master in that niche. So when someone in that niche meets, meets you, they can't compare to anyone else. They just say, nobody
1: knows what you know in this niche. So that'd be one thing is, is really niche heavily. So I'm just going to ask, like, when you made the decision to start niching in, how long did it actually take before you saw any momentum from that? I and mean, like, was it immediate once you shifted? Or it was like, no, I did. And then three years later, some results started coming.
2: <laughs> no, probably 12 to 18 months. Because okay. I had always worked with business owners. Some of our biggest success stories came from business owners that we've worked with that had exits. We had a business owner that exited, sold their business for $1.6 billion to Blackstone a couple of years ago. Uh, great friends of mine, four business partners. So we've had some tremendous success. So I loved working with business owners in that complexity. But when I went all in, really about eight years ago, when we said, we're only going to take business owners, first thing I realized is when that's all you're doing all day, your deficiencies become much more apparent, the areas that you need to get better, the knowledge that needs to increase, rather than if you're dealing with them and others, maybe sometimes you don't notice as clearly where you need to get better. So I think that was part of it, is me getting better. And then the other thing was just learning how to actually tell the story. So I had one entrepreneur uh, hire us, and 12 months later, he said this to me. He said, Jim, and that's what I love about business owners. They'll tell you straight to your face, exactly, directly. He said, Jim, you're so crappy at explaining what you do. I had to hire you. And then 12 months later, I realized how amazing it was. And that stung a little bit, but it made me realize that <laughs> it's not just niching, but being able to communicate to your niche why you're different and why you're the best firm to serve them in their particular circumstances. So that was another big learning lesson. So once I got those figured out, Got the execution dialed in and really learned, Okay, these little details are where the magic is, knowing these things that no one else knows about business owners and then communicating to them in a way where they could get it right away. And today I could be sitting next to a business owner entrepreneur who's a right fit client and over a two or three minute conversation, that business owner will say, gosh, I haven't heard anything like this before I think I need your services. Can we jump on a call? Hmm. And and that's when you know you've got the message dialed in and where you've niched really heavily. So those are the things I've learned that I wish I could tell myself years ago is is just to believe in that process and and niche
1: heavily. So any other advice you would give younger, newer advisors like just getting started today?
2: Be curious. That's been a thing, even today. Yeah, I'm so curious. I love to learn. I love to get more planning, education, and knowledge. And that's one reason why I love this team is because they push me too. You know, it used to be I was the one that knew the most in the firm. And now there are certain topics that I go to other advisors and say, hey, tell me what you think about this. Because uh, I I learned that having 20 advisors working together gets a way better result than one advisor or two advisors. So I think about if I tell a young advisor, think about the culture you're in and think about learning and growing and just being curious. Because sometimes I think some advisors who are young, they worry so much about, am I getting paid, this, that, what's in it for me? Just be curious. If you're curious, that will make all the difference. And that's one thing I admire about you, Michael, is I have always seen you as someone who's curious. You're constantly mm-hmm. learning, not just for the thing of to make more money or or so that people think you're smart or clients think you're smart, but just because you love to do it. And that's, I think, what I would tell any anyone who wants to be great, really in any profession, be curious and never stop learning. So. As we
1: wrap up, this is a podcast about success. And just one of the themes that comes up is the word success means very different things to different people. And so you're on this wonderful path for success with the, you know, great growing business that has a fantastic, fantastic eSop valuation now. So like the the business box is checked pretty well. How do you define success for yourself at this point? Number one thing is my marriage. My
2: wife Mimi is such an extraordinary person. And I feel like our marriage is stronger today than it was 30 years ago when we got married. And just we've grown together and built the business together. She's president of the firm. The number one thing in my life is my marriage and that relationship. And then I'd say after that, the legacy of this model that we're creating, I really believe that this can go on for decades and decades and be something that in some small way changes the industry for business owner entrepreneurs. And then the other piece is, our people, our team. I can't tell you how excited we're going to be when we make millionaires out of our advisors. Uh, so I would say that's it. My marriage, number one, number two, continuing this model to help and serve entrepreneurs and helping our team get wealthy, not just through their salaries and their income, but through the the value of the business, because that's really where we measure success on the business today, is the valuation. That's the number one thing. And because we're all in it together, it's not just us as business owners. it, it, I think, brings us together in a way that's powerful and meaningful. uh, And and that's how I define
1: success. Very cool, Jim. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. It's been a pleasure
2: and it's something i wanted to do for a long time. And uh, it's as advertised. I really appreciate the time with you, Michael.
1: Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.